0: Hi friends, it's another episode from the Asian Madness Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, for sticking around, for leaving reviews, and for being cool with me. I appreciate it immensely. So let's get right to it. Today's case is actually a highly requested case, and I admit I've sort of been putting it off for quite some time because some other podcasts have covered it in the past few years. Of course, it does deserve to be talked about, but I just wanted to wait for a bit. Talk about other lesser-known cases in the meantime. This case technically has two time periods, one that is significantly older and one that is quite recent, similar to the whole Golden State Killer, aka Original Night Stalker and BTK situation. If anything, these case developments might give people some hope that older cases can be solved eventually since we have come so far with the help of science, especially DNA testing and matching. It definitely sucks when terrible crimes are committed and the killers aren't caught, but it's even worse when the police end up arresting the wrong person. Not only is it embarrassing for them, but it actually complicates things so much more. Some people might think arresting someone is a job well done, but only if you get the right person. Today's case is going to be that level of chaos. This is the case of the Hwasong serial murders from South Korea, and the killer was only identified in recent years. Let's begin. Today we'll be looking at an area known as Gyeonggi Province in South Korea. This area is very populous, and the name of the province literally means the area surrounding the capital, and the capital being Seoul. The capital of Gyeonggi Province is Suwon City, and the province is almost 4,000 square miles size-wise. Gyeonggi Province has a lot of different industries going on, including farming, fishery, heavy machinery, etc. In other words, some places can get quite rural. Today though, we will be looking at a specific city called Hwasong, located in the southwestern part of the province. Kwasung City has the largest area of farmland in any other place in Gyeonggi province, and that bit of information will definitely play into this case. So the whole ordeal started sometime around 1986. Like I said, there were lots of rural farmland in these places, which can get a bit deserted depending on the time of day. Regardless, this place has never been known as dangerous or scary, and South Korea as a whole isn't really a dangerous place to begin with. Women were probably not too worried walking around alone at night, and it was something people had to do at times. But sometime around February of 1986, the police began to receive multiple rape reports from women in the local area. Well, that was definitely concerning. In just a matter of five months, seven women have filed police reports, and who knows, there were probably way more victims than seven, considering how women have and will always worry about speaking up. Add in the fact that it was in the 80s, in a rather conservative rural town, I would be surprised if every single rape victim spoke up. So since these were rape and not murder victims, they all lived to tell the police what happened, including what the man looked like. Interestingly enough, All the victims seemed to have the same description of their rapist, which can only mean there's a serial rapist out and about. He was described to be about 170 centimeters tall, and for American people, that would be around 5'6", or maybe 5'7". His build was rather slender, and he seemed to be quite young, possibly only in his 20s. According to the woman who came forward, This unknown man would tail a woman who was walking alone, grab them, take out his knife, and force the woman to take off their stockings and underwear. Then he would use the stockings to bind them and put their underwear over their heads, almost like a way to blindfold them. He would then rape them, and all the while cussing like a teenager who just learned a new cuss word. The similarities did not end here, though. All the reported rapes happened on rainy nights, especially when it was foggy. A few questions you might have, though. What if the women weren't wearing stockings? I don't know. Maybe he specifically targeted women who wore stockings? Did he hurt any of his victims? Well, yes, aside from the general emotional trauma and injuries you might get from being raped, a few of his victims allegedly tried to fight him and did end up with stab wounds. But nothing fatal. So the bad news is that there was a guy out there raping women, and the good news is that it seemed to be just one guy doing it. So if they catch him, they end the whole thing. Sounds easy, but it was far from that. So the police knew they had a rapist on their hands. Okay, not ideal, not great, but at least it wasn't fully dangerous as in killing people, right? Obviously, wrong. As far as anyone knew, the rapes took place between the months of February and July of 1986. Then, things simply escalated. A 71-year-old woman surnamed Lee disappeared sometime around mid-September of 1986. She had been visiting her daughter and vanished sometime after leaving. Her body was found, face down, a day later, naked from the waist down, her hands and feet tied together. Her cause of death was strangulation. A 71-year-old woman. Murder and rape is definitely wrong, regardless of your victim's age. But it's almost unthinkable when it's done to, say, a child or an older person. Absolutely disgusting. So clearly, the police needed to work even faster now. Not only did they have a rapist on the loose, they also had a murderer to find. At the time of Miss Lee's murder, there weren't many clues or evidence that could pinpoint who the murderer was. Also, this was the 80s. Very limited methods, and local police were probably not used to crimes like these, so they most likely lacked training and knowledge overall. I'm not dissing the police, but let's just say the police didn't exactly have the best reputation for being dependable and trustworthy, so take that as you will. So weeks go by, no ID on the killer. Then, on October 20th, a 25-year-old woman surnamed Park had gone out that evening to meet a potential suitor. Not dating, more as an arranged dating marriage kind of thing. She had dinner with the man and left at around 8pm. She was either taken on her way to the bus stop or after she got off the bus. She was raped and then strangled to death. Circumstances surrounding Miss Pock were eerily similar to that of the elderly Miss Lee, except Miss Pock had a few weird markings on her chest, which were concluded to have been markings done by a screwdriver. Maybe the murderer-slash-rapist carried both a knife and a screwdriver, or maybe he was low on weapons that one day, or maybe it was a spur-of-the-moment kind of crime where he wasn't prepared. Regardless, Her cause of death was also due to strangulation. At this point, the police probably figured that the two murders were committed by the same guy due to their similarities, but it was definitely hard to say. What else the two cases had in common were the lack of clues, so the police had no leads and this investigation would just go on and on in circles. Time went by again, and this time, around mid-December, Another woman lost her life. This was 24 year old Miss Kwan. On the evening of December 12th, Miss Kwan met up with her husband for dinner. Her husband was a busy man, and he carved out some time that day to have dinner with his wife. After the two finished eating, it was almost 11 p.m., but the husband had to return to his office as he still had some unfinished business. Miss Kwan was understanding, so she left on her own towards the bus stop. She was never seen alive again. In between the time of her disappearing and the day her body was found, two other victims would lose their lives in again a similar fashion. We will get back to Miss Kwan in a bit. So Miss Kwan disappeared on December twelfth, and if you've been keeping track of the dates, it seems as if the killer strikes once every month or two months. This was not ideal, and people were very worried and scared men were scared for their wives, daughters, and mothers, and women were scared for themselves, for the most part. You would think that at this point people would start being more cautious, as in avoiding any nighttime solo walks, but maybe the police didn't fully inform the public the kind of threat they were facing, because they didn't want people to panic and get on their backs for not solving these rapes and murders quickly. But also, Many people probably felt like, oh, this won't happen to me. Some people might feel far removed from the situation, like, I can't be that unlucky, right? Two days later, the killer struck again. This was somewhat unexpected. Miss Lee had been out on the evening of December 14th to meet a potential suitor. They had met at a coffee shop in Suwon City, aka the capital city of Gyeonggi Province. I guess her coffee date went on for longer than expected, and it was almost 11pm when she began her journey back home. Unsurprisingly, she didn't make it home. It was believed that she may have disappeared either before boarding her bus or after getting off the bus. Her body was discovered about a week later in a field, her hands tied together with her bra, and her cause of death was strangulation. This would be the last killing of 1986, but definitely not the last in the whole grand scheme of murder. In January of 1987, an 18 year old girl was heading home after a long day at school. It's not uncommon for students to stay till late at school, as many schools had study periods after class where students stayed to study some more. The girl was heading home at approximately 9 p.m., but she never made it home. Her body was found once again in a field, hands tied, her socks stuffed in her mouth, probably to keep her quiet. And again, her cause of death was strangulation. I think we all see a pattern here. Most of these women were bound by their wrists with their own clothing items, they were partially naked, and cause of death was mostly strangulation. Looks like the whole city has a serial killer on their hands, and still, this was only the beginning. Oddly enough, there were no more murders for the next few months. Either that, or maybe some victims were never discovered. During this time, the body of the 24-year-old victim from December 12, 1986, was discovered. Not sure why it took so long to find her body, but about four months had passed from the day she disappeared to the day her body was found. She was dumped in a field only about 50 meters away from her house, and once again, her cause of death was strangulation. Every day the town dreaded hearing about another missing woman or another woman's corpse showing up. It's terrifying living like this, not knowing when it'll happen, if it'll happen to someone you know, or worse, if it'll happen to you. That silence was eventually broken in early May of 1987 when a 29 year old woman disappeared at night. It was a rainy night and knowing that her husband didn't have an umbrella with him, she decided to go to his work to give him an umbrella. Honestly, super sweet of her, but she never made it to her husband's workplace. She was found about a week later, half-naked and strangled to death. After this woman's murder, a long period of silence and uneasiness followed. There were no more murders for the rest of the year and for the majority of 1988. The killer struck again in early September of 1988, though, throwing the town into another frenzy. Maybe they had hopes that the killer left the place, or maybe they died or were imprisoned for other crimes, but I guess not. This time, the victim was a 54-year-old woman. She had spent the night helping her eldest son at his restaurant. She began heading home at around 9.30pm, and as you can guess, she was taken before she got home her body was found a while later her bra used to tie her hands together and her socks used to stuff her mouth an uncomfortable and weird detail is the fact that the killer inserted some peach slices into the woman's vagina cause of death wise strangulation of course but this time things were not the same because someone actually managed to get a look at this guy after years of terrorizing the neighborhood it was about time someone caught a glimpse of this dude. So, what happened? A bus driver by the surname Kang had been driving that night along with the bus conductor, Um, and out of nowhere a man suddenly appears and forces the bus to stop. The man got on and immediately caught the attention of both the bus driver and the conductor. For one thing, the man was heard swearing under his breath the whole time. Next, The man's clothes appeared to be wet, despite it not having rained at all that day. Finally, the man also asked the driver for a lighter to light a cigarette, and as he extended his hand, the driver noticed a blotch on his hand, stating that it looked like peach juice, or maybe some sort of liquid that was pinkish. The bus driver, of course, reported the strange man to the authorities, and soon they came up with a composite sketch and a general description. The man is believed to be in his mid-twenties, height-wise about 170 or 5'7". He was thin, he had monolids, and was a bit hunched, as in he had really bad posture. It wasn't exactly a very distinct description, but at least I had a better idea of who they were looking for. And interestingly enough, he mashed the sketch of the rapists that had been terrorizing women in the year 1986. Same guy? Maybe. About a week after the last murder and the run-in with the bus driver, another woman was attacked. Well, she wasn't even a woman per se, as she was only 13, and obviously a child. Clearly, this guy doesn't discriminate and no female is off-limits to him, as long as the circumstances were in his favor. This girl was found dead in her room by her mother on the morning of September 16, 1988. This was quite different, considering out of all the murders and attacks so far, she was the only one who was killed in her house. But hold on. If the MO is so different, isn't it possible that she was killed by somebody else? The police managed to find some pubic hair on the girl's body that did not belong to her, and immediately, they found a suspect. I'm kind of confused about how that works, because DNA testing wasn't a thing. So what did they do? Go around asking potential suspects for pubic hair and compare them? The police ended up zeroing on a guy, 22-year-old Yoon sung Yo, claiming that his pubic hair was a 40% match to those found on the crime scene. More importantly, though, he was allegedly an acquaintance of the victim's older sister and by acquaintance, I mean he supposedly had a crush on her. It was believed that Yoon, expecting the older sister to be in that room sleeping, crept in quietly, wanting to rape and kill her, maybe because she wasn't interested in him. Turns out he had the wrong sister, but well, she was strangled to death anyway. What didn't make sense was the fact that Yoon suffered from polio when he was a child, and as an adult, he walked with a limp. According to the police, though, the perpetrator most likely climbed a wall to get inside the house, but Yoon had a limp. He wasn't able to walk properly, let alone climb a freaking wall. The police didn't care, though, and they were hell-bent on naming him as the killer. They didn't think Yoon was the killer for the other cases, but strongly believed that he had motive for this specific killing, and thus they labeled him as the copycat killer. He went to court, was found guilty, and then sentenced to life in prison. He was released on parole in 2009 after serving 19 and a half years. The rape and killing stopped for about a year afterwards, maybe because he got spooked seeing a guy get arrested, assuming that other guy Yoon was a copycat killer, or maybe he was busy with other things. Either way... It left everyone wondering if he would strike again, and indeed, he did. Fast forward to mid-November of 1990. A 14-year-old girl was heading home after meeting up with friends. It wasn't even that late. It was about 6.30pm. Her body was found the following day at the foot of a small mountain. Her hands were tied, her bra was stuffed in her mouth, and a few random items were found shoved in her vagina. Then comes the new year, as in 1991, people are still afraid, but life has to go on. In early April of 1991, at around 9 p.m., a 69-year-old woman was attacked on her way home. Her body was found in a wooded area not too far from where she lived. She was found mostly nude, her socks had been shoved into her vagina, and her cause of death was strangulation. The police did manage to collect some hair and a cigarette butt from the crime scene, and although they were hoping to get it tested and possibly matched, it never happened. This was 1991. Forensic science and technology still had a long way to go, unfortunately. This last woman makes a total of 10 victims. The killings have decreased significantly from when they first started in 1986, but the guy was still out and about and despite the sketch and descriptions, he was never identified. At least, not yet. Not to say that the police never bothered to make this a priority. The investigation was simply not getting anywhere. In fact, this was probably one of the biggest criminal investigations in South Korea's criminal history. The police did what they could, and they did what you would expect them to, Thousands and thousands of police officers were mobilized and assigned to task forces to hunt the killer down. They looked into thousands of suspects, compared thousands of fingerprints, and even arrested and interrogated more than a thousand people, whom they believe could have been the murderer. Despite all this, nothing solid ever came of it. Hearing about all this feels a little depressing and hopeless, almost like looking for a needle in a haystack. I'm sure plenty of guys fit the killer's general description, and it probably took a lot of time to check their alibis, backgrounds, and and eventually rule each and one of them out. So let's review what we know about this killer. He's a man in his 20s, about 170 centimeters tall, slim, curses a lot, willing to rape and murder any woman under the right circumstances, regardless of age. He smokes and has killed at least 10 women. Oh, and for some reason, they believe that the killer's blood type was B, which would later turn out to be wrong. These attacks took place from 1986 to 1991, so it's safe to assume that he never really left the area, which also makes it even more crazy. This guy has been killing and raping multiple women in the same place for years, and his identity continued to remain a mystery. The Asian Madness Podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. Life is tough. I get it. We have relationship issues, work and money problems, stress, you name it. The world can be extremely unkind, and all that can come back and affect us in ways that makes it hard to deal with. For example, you might have these dreams in your head, things you want to achieve, but something seems to be preventing you from achieving them. What can you do? Here's one way. BetterHelp is a professional counseling platform where they can match you with a licensed professional therapist in just under 48 hours. It's convenient as it's completely online, it's offered worldwide as long as you have internet, and you have the choice of communicating with them either via messages, phone, or video calls. Some people prefer seeing faces, while others may feel uncomfortable doing that, so this is a great way to find some balance without stressing yourself out even more. If you've tried traditional counseling, you might agree with me that it can get quite pricey, and BetterHelp is simply way more affordable. I have used BetterHelp several times throughout the past few years, and it's definitely helped me through times where I felt hopeless, and sometimes I just needed an unbiased person to hear me out and give me some feedback. As a listener who's ready to make positive changes in your life, you'll get 10% off when you visit our sponsor at BetterHelp.com A-M. That's BetterHelp.com slash A-M. Don't wait around for happiness to just happen to you. Take action when you can. That's betterhelp.com am. But after combing through thousands of leads, did any of the suspects stand out? Yes. Let me say something first, though. I think having suspects is great and all, but before you're 100% sure, it can be very dangerous to let others know about it especially the media and the press. We have seen so many people get brutalized by the public because they were a suspect, and instead of being concise in their wording, they make the suspect look 100% guilty. And then they dig out all their dirty bits from the past. With that said, let's look at the list of suspects who were wrongly accused. In March of 1990, the police had a suspect, and according to sources, This man was brutally interrogated. He was released afterwards, but it was probably all too much for him, so he took his own life by jumping in front of a train. Maybe it's the psychological and physical torment he endured, or maybe it's the thought that people would no longer look at him the same anymore. Once you cast suspicion on someone, it's hard to get rid of it completely later on. Strangers won't know what to believe in, and in their minds, it'll always... Make more sense to be cautious towards you. The following year, in 1991, another man was accused of being the rapist slash killer, specifically for the murder of Miss Kwan, the tenth victim. The accusation eventually drove him to suicide as well, jumping from the fourth floor of an apartment building. Another man came up as suspect for the seventh attack, the 54-year-old woman who was heading home after helping out at her son's restaurant. He was again interrogated relentlessly and after the police released him, he killed himself in front of his father's grave. Another man was believed to have been involved in the fourth and fifth attack and the person that called it in even told the police that he had a dream that indicated this man was indeed the perpetrator and that this dream was a sign from the gods. Okay, whatever you say, man. So the guy is questioned, interrogated, probably abused, and eventually confessed to the killings. The police thought they were getting somewhere finally, but when they tried to fit the evidence into the man's confession, it simply didn't work. In other words, none of the evidence supported this man as the killer. Well, the police had no choice but to let him go, and being a broken man, he tried to kill himself, but was unsuccessful. Although he didn't die, He had sustained some kind of injury during his suicide, which eventually led to his death in 1997. This whole situation is pretty upsetting, one tragedy after another. A lot of victims, a lot of people wrongly accused, and yet the man responsible was still at large. I get that the police had to investigate leads, but it's not clear how ethical their methods were. Obviously, they wanted to get the guy and close the case ASAP but at what cost? And how can you tell the difference between a killer who lies and an innocent person who's only trying to clear their name? Well, this case sat around basically cold since the beginning of the 1990s. It must be so discouraging seeing time go by, year after year, and still no answer. But on the other hand, science and technology have both advanced dramatically over the years. And if any of the evidence they had collected previously were tested again later on, who knows what could happen. About 30 years after the first murder, in September of 2019, police decided to take all the previously collected evidence and test them, including hair, cigarette butt, and some clothing items that belonged to the victims, which the killer may have touched. One of his victims' underwear was tested, and, surprisingly, a match came up. The DNA test result also showed that there were several other unsolved cases that could be linked to the same man. This was a huge breakthrough, because realistically, what were the odds of solving a cold case, especially after 30 years? Let me just cut to the chase now because this is a well-known case and it's solved, so I don't want to play into the whole mystery vibe. The man that was identified from the DNA test would turn out to be the perpetrator behind the rapes and murders in Song, and here's what you should know about him. His name is Il Chun Je. He was born on January 31, 1963, in Song. So in other words, he was as local as they come. His blood type was O, not B, as the police initially stated. This might have helped to incorrectly eliminate some suspects so that's a bit of a problem. As for his upbringing, his family was quite poor, and in general, he didn't really have much. This is the part where you look to see if anything traumatic happened to him, because it's rare for someone to just wake up one day and decide to go around raping and killing women. So according to sources, Il had developed a strong hatred towards women. Some say it was because of his relationship with his mother, which is possible but another source mentioned the sexual assault incident. So when he was still young and naive, maybe preteen aged, an older girl approached him. She basically used candy to lure him to her house and once they were alone, she took off his pants and sexually assaulted him. Il wasn't sure what happened, but once he processed everything, it would end up impacting him in more ways than one, and not in a good way. After graduating from high school, Il headed off to South Korea's compulsory military service, which took up two years of his life. His life of crime started after he got out, around the year 1986. As you already know, he took his frustrations out on women, first by raping them, then by killing them. In the beginning stages of his violent activities, he seemed to be quite busy, killing or raping someone every two or three months but then there was a significant gap around the late 80s till early 90s. And what happened? Well, around midnight on September 26, 1989, Il broke into a home in Suwon City, but unluckily for him, the owner caught him immediately. The police were called, and he was eventually sentenced to a year and a half for robbery and violence. He had supposedly brought weapons with him when he was breaking into the home, so it's probably not too far-fetched to assume that he would have used them, if needed. Il was not too happy about this one-year-and-a-half sentence, so he appealed. He said that the police had it all wrong. He wasn't trying to break into someone's home. He was, in fact, trying to run from someone who was attacking him. And when he came upon that house, he wanted to hide there. Whether or not the judge believed him, they seemed to like him as a person. He seemed sincere, not very threatening, so they adjusted his sentence, and he only ended up serving a few months. He was released in April of nineteen ninety, and he went right back to his old ways, sometime in nineteen ninety one Eden married a woman, and the two had a child together. It was also the same year he took the life of the last known victim, the sixty nine year old woman. It's probably hard for us normal people to imagine but serial killers don't usually serial kill full-time. They sometimes have families, a job, or something that helps make them seem like normal people. When normal life events happen, it usually ends up disrupting their killing schedule. And this is very likely why Il stopped killing altogether. He had a wife and a kid now. He had to be around for them a bit more, even if he hated it. Il was unsurprisingly not known to be a good husband, He was both physically and verbally abusive towards his wife. He wanted things his way. He missed the violence, and he honestly didn't give a damn about her feelings. Miraculously, the two remained married for about two years before his wife decided enough was enough. It seriously makes me wonder what she saw in him to begin with. Around December of 1993, his wife packed up all her stuff and left him. Not sure if she took the kid with her, but that would have probably been a good idea, since Il doesn't care about anyone but himself. In January of 1994, Il's sister-in-law showed up at his house. Some sources say he invited her over, some say she showed up unannounced, berating him. This would make sense if she was his wife's sister, and after finding out how abusive and mean he was to her, she came to reprimand him and stand up to him. She was only 18, and despite coming off quite sassy and self-assured, she was still no match to a serial killer. During their interaction, Il managed to drug the sister-in-law, and while she was passed out, he took his chance and raped her. She woke up later on and realized something wasn't right, and not long after, she began to freak out because she found out that she had been drugged. Il was scared that she would go to the police and report him, so he made the decision to kill her right then and there. When the father-in-law notified the police of his missing daughter, Il even tried to act helpful, offering to help look for her. The police began to suspect him as he came off strange and overly attached to the case, and what really made them decide to arrest him was the fact that he kept asking the same question over and over. How many years do you serve in prison for rape and murder? He admitted to killing his sister-in-law, then went back and said he was coerced, but at this point it was too late, and so much evidence was pointing his way. He was initially sentenced to death in May of 1994, but after reviewing his case in 1995, his sentence was then reduced to life imprisonment, with the possibility of parole. So now, fast forward to mid-2019, that's when the public realized that the Hwasong serial killer had actually been living in prison for the past 20-some years. Il couldn't really argue against DNA evidence, so in the end, he told the police that he had raped at least 30 women and murdered at least 14 people, including the original 10 mentioned in this episode. So if he admitted to killing the previous 10 victims, what does that say about our copycat killer, Yoon, who was accused of killing a 13-year-old girl in her house? He had already been released in 2009, but despite being released, he was still technically guilty of the crime. People will always see him as the rapist, the killer, and he will always carry that with him. But now that new information has finally come to light, Yoon immediately demanded the court for a retrial. He served his time, he's free, but that wasn't enough. At the very least, he could clear his name once and for all and regain his honor. The court granted his wish for a retrial, and after all the evidence was presented, including Il's own statement regarding the murder of the 13-year-old girl, Yoon was found innocent. This was a huge win for people who have been falsely accused and incarcerated. But what does this say about those on the opposing side? The police basically tortured and abused a man into admitting guilt even made up some fake-ass reports just to show people that they did their job. An investigation was then conducted on those who were in charge of Yoon's case. Eight of the original investigators were charged with abuse of power, illegal detention, and for falsifying reports and confessions. This should serve as a wake-up call to all those in power. Beating and abusing people into admitting guilt isn't necessarily difficult. But what does that say about you? And whatever happened to innocent till proven guilty? Many countries have statute of limitations when it comes to certain crimes. So for example, the state of Washington has a three-year statute of limitations for personal injury, injury to property, fraud, and trespassing. So beginning from when you first report it, if the person isn't caught within three years, then this crime basically becomes unprosecutable. So, as for this case, murder in South Korea had a 15-year statute of limitations. Kind of crazy that a statute of limitations exists for murder, but things have changed for the better. The statute of limitation for murder was eventually thrown out years later, so beginning on July 30th, 2015, all murder cases in South Korea would no longer have a statute of limitations. So if you killed somebody in 2016 and you were found out like 50 years into the future, your ass is still in trouble. That's good, right? Sure, except the statute of limitations for this specific case ran out in April of 2006. So even if they were to find the killer after that, they could not prosecute him. This worked out for South Korea big time because when they found their mysterious killer, He was already in prison for the murder of his sister in law. It's unfortunate that Il would never officially face justice for the murders and rapes from the 80s and 90s, but at the very least, everyone could sleep somewhat easier knowing that he's behind bars, and it's probably safe to assume that he will never have a chance to be paroled. When questioned about the rapes and murders, Il admitted that he never really thought about his crimes. He just did whatever he wanted to do at the time. Without planning. Quote, I still don't understand why I wasn't a suspect. Crime happened around me and I didn't try hard to hide things, so I thought I would get caught easily. There were hundreds of police forces. I bumped into detectives all the time, but they always asked me about people around me. Unquote. This is quite an interesting comment, and it throws a lot of shade at the police. Like, this serial killer and rapist is just not trying hard to hide his tracks and yet no one suspected him at all. I wonder what it was about him that made the police not see him as a suspect. Was it his meek demeanor? His sincerity? Il also allegedly expressed remorse for all that he's done. He apologized not only to the victims and their families, but also to all those who had been falsely accused, including Yun, the man who was wrongly imprisoned for a murder Il had committed. Il had come to terms with the fact that he may never be released from prison. True, he can't be prosecuted for his past crimes, but his chances for parole have probably vanished now that his past has been discovered. He stated that he would rather stay in prison, because he knows how the public will react if he were to be released. He raped and killed multiple women, and this is not something people will forget about. I guess staying in prison is safer for him, and probably for everyone else as well. The Hwasang serial murder case has been one of the most important cases in South Korea. This case has been used as an inspiration and reference in several movies and TV shows over the years, the most famous one being Memories of Murder, a movie from 2003, directed by Bong Joon-ho, the same guy who directed that crazy movie Parasite. As you can see, This movie came out way before the case was even solved. It's a very good movie, and I definitely recommend it, even if it feels a bit weird watching it now, since the case has already been solved. Fun fact, during the movie's 10th year anniversary viewing in 2013, people were joking that, since many criminals like to return to the scene of the crime, or bask in their good old glory days, they wouldn't be surprised if the killer was also at the viewing. They should check everyone's blood type and see who's type B, since that's what the police initially said. Good thing they didn't, because Il's blood type was not even B. It would suck to randomly embarrass people at a movie theater, for sure. So there you have it. The man known as the Korean Zodiac Killer. Or in my opinion, more like the Korean Night Stalker. I'm referring to Joseph DeAngelo, not Richard Ramirez. You see, they both raped. Killed, both cases went cold for years, and they were both then caught because of advances in DNA and science. I hate what Ill did to all his victims and for the pain that he's caused, but I have to say, finally having him identified and imprisoned for life is definitely the best outcome. Do you think he is genuinely remorseful? On one hand, finding out his real identity has no impact on his life whatsoever, it's not like he got sentenced to something worse, so, in a sense, I tend to want to believe that he's sorry. But him being sorry still isn't enough because so many lives are changed, and not in a good way at all. My heart goes out to all his victims and their families, because honestly, not one of them deserved to die under such terrible circumstances. Thank you all for tuning in to this episode. Please try your best and stay safe out there especially when you're alone at night. Be alert. Watch out for yourself and for those around you. Till next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com.